Welcome to Worship with New Song Community Church, October 10th, 2021. If you're joining us on the live stream, be sure and download the bulletin and the sermon outline. If you have kids, there's a handout there for you to download. We've been using Experiencing God as our devotional book. There's actually a few more back there if anybody wants to jump in and use it for our devotional reading each day. And as I was reading last week on October the 2nd, it struck me something that I had never noticed before. And it came from the scripture in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. And I read that, and then I started reading the Blackaby commentary. The greatest moments in a Christian's life come through prayer. I circled that. And then the next phrase, when Jesus prayed, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. I've been in ministry almost 40 years. I've been a Christian for almost 50 years. I'd never seen the fact that it was while Jesus was praying that God responded. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and the voice came from heaven. It was while he was praying. And then I, re- and then I thought, well, of course. It's because he was praying is being in tune with God. Praying is being in conversation with God. It's, it's being in that relationship of listening and talking with God. Well, of course. He, he wouldn't have seen it had he not been in that frame of mind, if he had not been praying. And it just struck me how important it is for us, if we want to experience God, that we need to be praying. And Jesus wasn't alone. He was with other people. He, was, he actually submitted himself to John the Baptist so that he would baptize him. How much more, do if we want to really experience God, then we have to prioritize our times of praying together and our times of fasting and praying together with God. So that's why we, we emphasize those things. And I would challenge you, you can, we, we, um, we broadcast our monthly prayer gatherings on Facebook. If you don't have a Facebook account, we've got a, a generic account that Wendy can give you to, you can just go online and, and be a part of it, even if you're not in the building. If you can't make it, you can go back and, and participate in the replay. But I, the, the incredible things that God has done in my life has been as a result of spending time with him in prayer and fasting. And that's what I want for you. It's not natural. Our natural inclination is to be thinking about ourselves, is to be thinking about what we need to do. And so it's, it, it requires that. Which goes along with some of what we're going to be talking about today. We are really, um, this series of messages is zeroing in on what it looks like for, in our hearts, to set apart Christ as Lord. In In your outline today, just as a point of review, God's place in our lives is about honoring Jesus as Lord and holy. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 1 Peter 3, 15. God's place in our lives is determined by what we fear most. We talked about that a number of weeks ago. That which you fear the most um, is is determined by God's place in our lives. If If we fear him the most, we will serve him. If we fear other things more than we fear him, God won't be first in our lives. God's place in our lives will determine what we fight for, what we live for, what we focus on, what we get our, give our time, energy, talents, money to. And then finally, we'll determine our response when we're confronted for sin. And that's what we want to talk about today. Perhaps you've been in this scenario. <clears throat> you wake up in the surgical recovery room. Ever been there? Maybe from an accident, maybe from surgery, maybe from an illness, but you wake up having had a doctor do something to you. And you wake up in this surgical recovery room in pain 
because he has taken a sharp knife, he has invaded your body in some way, shape, or form. Now, here's where the scenario probably takes a turn from what you've experienced. The doctor comes in with a big smile on his face, and he says, it was a success. It was a success. We got it all. But you, being in so much pain, respond with, why did you hurt me? And the doctor gets his dumbfounded look on his face, saying, well, it, it couldn't be avoided. We had to hurt you to help you. And you being in pain and, and just nasty, respond with, doctor, you are so cruel. You're the cruelest doctor in the world. I am in so much pain. Why did you hurt me so bad? And the doctor said, you were going to die. You were going to die. And you say, you are a bad doctor. I am in pain. I am hurting. This can't be good. You shouldn't have done this to me. And the doctor, in, in, at the end of his rope, goes, I saved your life. Does that sound ridiculous? And yet, when God does his spiritual surgery on us, which you can call a lot of different things, we're calling it confrontation in this series of messages. Sometimes we can act the same. God, why is this hurt? Why is this so painful? God, you are abandoning me. You don't love me. You don't care about me. You are letting me be in pain. And especially when God does it through another person. We can cry out and not recognize that God is actually saving our lives. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, I didn't put this in your outline. You can write it down and look at it later if you want. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. <clears throat> tells us, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. You could read scalpel there if you want. When God does his spiritual surgery on us, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The writer there is describing when God confronts us with the truth that comes from his, his, his word, his, anytime God speaks, and he's saying it confronts us with what is true and what is real. It gets to the spirit and it discerns, it divides, it, it identifies that which needs to be taken care of, that which needs to be expelled from the body, removed from our lives. Spiritual confrontation is when God identifies a place in our lives when we are headed toward destruction. So if you're on that operating table and the doctor sees an appendix that's about to burst. He's saving your life. I remember my, my, my grandfather, my mom's dad, had um, five different siblings, and they, the, the family history was that at 18 years old, one of them had appendicitis. And because it was so long ago, they didn't have the resources, and she died, 18 years old, from a burst appendix. If a doctor has you on that operating table, he's saving your life. If God has you on his surgical operating table and confronting you with what you're doing, he's saving your life because you're headed for destruction. If you are a Christ follower, God confronted you at some point. We call it conviction of sin. We call it, you know, there are other terms for it. Um, feeling guilty for our sins, feeling sorry for our sins. God was confronting you because you were headed to destruction. You were headed to a, a, a lifetime without him in this world and an eternity without him in hell. And so when he confronts you, it's because he loves you and he wants you to turn around. And so it's how the Christ following life begins. It's also how the Christ following life continues. So I asked the kids, do you ever do anything wrong? Not no, I never know the answers that I'm going to hear. <laughs> because you don't know what goes on in their little minds. If I ask us, do you ever do anything wrong? The answer has to be yes. Because that's the truth. And so the Christ following life is 
a lifestyle of God showing us, pointing out the places where we're going wrong. God confronts us to lead us to back to himself. Sometimes spiritual surgery, confrontation is huge. Sometimes it's a big, big deal. And those are the ones that we usually remember. Other times, it can be like a wart removal. Not a big deal. Hurts a little bit. You move on. Or a stitch here or there. You just need a Band-Aid. Sometimes going to to God in this scenario, it's it's not a big deal. And, And those, oftentimes, we don't even remember. So let's talk about practicing confrontation. Receiving it, and then sometimes being used by God to deliver it as obedience to Christ. Confrontation, if it's done by God to us through his word as we're reading the Bible, is an act of love. God is, because anytime we're, we're on the wrong track, we are veering off of God's track and headed towards destruction, headed towards damage, headed towards pain in some way. Sometimes it's through another person. Sometimes we are the people that God wants to use in another person's life. But in every case, it's an act of love. Confrontation is an invitation to experience real life. Confrontation is most painful when we resist it. So let's talk about it. We have to go back to last week's scripture and uh, revisit 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you have your Bible, turn there. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. We've got some pew Bibles in the back. Anybody? We need one up here. Anybody else? 2 Samuel chapter 11. We talked in depth about this last week, so if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to uh, get the CD or go online, and all the messages are there. They're also on YouTube if you want to watch them by video. Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. When I prepared for last week's message... Um, I didn't have this part in my notes. The, w- the emphasis on the, where David was supposed to be where? In battle. But David was where? He stayed at home. And I hadn't had that in my message to, imp- in my notes to emphasize it, but it just kept coming back. It kept coming back. And all week long it's been coming back. Where was David? At home, where was he supposed to be? At battle. And the, the question that keeps coming to my mind over and over, are there places where we are, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, or physically, that we're not supposed to be? And that's what's getting us into trouble. And I've asked myself that a lot over this last week. Because had David gone to battle, this whole scenario wouldn't even, had, couldn't have happened. He wouldn't have been in the place where he could even see what happens next. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, Is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So not only was he not a battle, he was staying at home. He was looking at something he shouldn't have been looking at. He, instead of running from that, instead of turning off the computer, instead of throwing away the magazine, whatever it was, he kept his eyes on what he shouldn't have kept. And he walked, he, he took a step on the slippery slope that would lead him to destruction. Verse 4, 
David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, who was the, the general of the armies, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah sent out of the king's house and was sent out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. So David not only committed adultery and got Bathsheba pregnant, now he's trying to cover it up. And all along the way, there are more and more people finding out, knowing what is going on. And yet David thinks he's done it in secret. Does that sound familiar? We don't do that, do we? There are more people who are aware of what we're doing wrong than we realize. Beyond God. When, David told, when they, they told David Uriah did not go down to his house because he was acting with integrity when everybody was out to war, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark... And Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? And remember that phrase, to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I'm going to act with integrity, O king. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank so that he made him drunk. I, if I can't get him to do it on his own volition, I'll get him to drunk so that his inhibitions are done. Here's the king who is the representative of God in the Old Testament who is trying to get other people. Not only has he sinned, but he's involved Bathsheba, he's going to involve Joab, and he's trying to involve Uriah. Destruction is on the way. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent by the hand of Uriah. He is sending the note back to Joab, the, the, the king's general, through Uriah's hand. And here's what it says. In the letter he wrote, set, your, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. In his own pocket, Uriah takes this note Make him die. Make, make Uriah die. Get into the hardest fighting and then have all the other soldiers pull back so that he's alone and will be killed. And as Joab, Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah the place where he knew where there were valiant men on the other side. And the men of the city came out and excuse me, fought with Joab and some of the servants of David um, among the people fell, Uriah the Hittite also died. Jump down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah, verses 18 to 25, just the count, uh, is the account between David and Joab and finding out what happened. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. And David breathed a sigh of relief, thinking, I took care of it. I covered it up. I got away with it. Everything's going to be just fine. And these are some of the most sobering words you'll ever read in Scripture. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The God of the universe, if the God of the universe is displeased with you, it's not going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going, he, God is holy. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
And David had done exactly the opposite. David was incredibly blind, I put this in your outline, and headed for destruction. He was headed for destruction. When we start down that slippery slope and we end up in the pit that's at the bottom, it just, it gets worse. It never gets better until we turn to God and let him take care of it. David was way, way, way deceived. He thought he'd gotten away with it. He was so blind that he didn't realize there's a whole slew of people who know what has happened. The person he asked about Bathsheba, the person that he sent to get Bathsheba, and all the servants, you know the servants were talking, right? They were talking about what was going on. And then when Uriah gets back and, and he begins to talk to the soldiers and explains what happened, all the soldiers are going, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Joab knows what's going on. He, knows, he may not know about Bathsheba yet, but he knows that David deliberately killed Bathsheba. And then he gets the news back to the battlefront that Bathsheba has married David. He, he knows but in our blindness, when we need to be confronted by sin, when we're living with a, a big sin, we are so blind, we don't even realize. David was so blind, he had lost understanding of what he was doing and how wrong it was. No amount, and so he has come to the place where no amount of Bible study no amount of worship in the tabernacle, no amount of singing psalms is ever going to break through the hardness of his heart. It's going to require a profound confrontation from God himself. We can get just in that kind of place. There are things in our lives that we start to make choices and we start to veer off and the, more, the farther we veer off, the more we get away from God's understanding and the more blind we get so that we don't even know. And that's why you can look around in our culture today and you see people who claim to know Christ and they're acting in exact opposite way that Christ would act. They're not, they're not, they're, it's possible to get so blind and so hard-hearted, you don't even realize it. You don't even know what you've done. And then when God confronts, if you resist that confrontation... You're dead. You're done. And destruction is on your doorstep. All of us are just that vulnerable. The de and, and the devil is constantly scheming, constantly scheming, trying to deceive you into doing things that you think you're doing what God wants you to do when in reality you're doing the opposite. And that's why we need the truth of God and we need each other. So let's talk about confrontation. Confer so compromise is when we give in to sin and we head down that slippery slope. Confrontation is when sin is pointed out to us. And, and I have to wonder if other people had tried to tell David try along the way. Had, had, did his servant say, no, 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 you don't want Bathsheba back there. You know, I don't know. But what we do know is he wasn't listening to God at all. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. And if you've watched the VeggieTale version of King George and the Ducky, this is when Paul Grape comes in with a flannel graph. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's really good. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet of God. He was, he, he's been seen earlier in the history. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd, which he had many, to prepare for the guest who had come. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Audience participation. What does that story do to you on the inside? Anger? 
heartbreak. Anything else? Emotion. Here's a here's a family. They got this little lamb who is raised as a pet, and here's a rich man who's got all of this, and he refuses to take one of his own that aren't even his pet, and he takes the pet of the poor man, and he takes the only thing that he's got, and he kills it, and feeds it to a guest. That ought to make you just great with anger and frustration, and that's not fair. That's not right. And that's what it did to David. And I love the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Nathan to come with this kind of story. Kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? There were two boys. Well, he got David. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, not himself. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, The man who has done this deserves to die. I don't don't know. I I didn't check it out in the um, Old Testament laws whether killing somebody else's lamb, you deserve to die. But adultery, you deserve to die. David was right. He deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. When we are not living in step with the Holy... And here, here's, here's what I wonder. So David's not alone. He's, got, he's in court. He's in royal court. Nathan comes in. There are other people standing around. And as Nathan's telling the story, I have to wonder if the whispers don't start among the soldiers and among, um, among his other, the diplomats and the people that are there and, and nudging each other going, Nathan's talking about David. Nathan's talking about Bathsheba. Nathan's talking. But David is clueless. When you are walking away from the Lord, when you are not listening to God's Spirit, you are clueless, and you don't even know. David was blind. Then Nathan, in verse 7, makes one of the incredible statements of the Bible. Because it's for all of us. You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have given you as much much more. I would have given you twice what you already had. You didn't need to go to Bathsheba. Uriah's only wife. You didn't need to kill him. You could, if you would have just come to me. And that's what God says to us. God says, I have come. I want you to have abundant life. I want you to enjoy this life. If you are, if you have a desire it, um, that is wrong, it's because the devil has taken and counterfeited that desire and will give you what is right. God will help you. He just doesn't say no. He says this instead. So anytime we're tempted to do something wrong, it's because the devil's trying to cover up that which we really desire and that which which God actually offers to us. And so he says, I would have given you, I would have done anything. I would have uh, unleashed the resources of heaven so that you wouldn't have committed this horrible, horrible sin. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. There were a lot of other people who knew. Bathsheba knew. Bathsheba's family probably knew. The soldiers knew. Everybody in court knew. Joab would know. Other soldiers trying to make sense of it. And next week, we're going to start talking about the consequences. Not just of David, but of our sins. We live in a world where feelings are easily hurt. Anybody want to say amen to that? Where we're told to accept people and their behavior as normal, okay, fine. We're told not to disagree. 
but just uh, everybody's got their own truth. That there is no objective truth. That to say anything different than what another person likes or believes or is, is violence, is verbal and emotional violence. And, and, I, and I think in some ways over the years I've bought into some of that. Because when, I, when we usually think of confrontation, we usually think of the times when it was big and it went bad instead of when it went well. And so my challenge to you today is as you listen to the, the few minutes that we have left, is to listen for the Holy Spirit to identify for you any place that he is trying to confront you to turn around or any place where he might be saying to you, you need to talk to that other person because they are headed to destruction. Where are you being confronted? By the word of God, by the, by the spirit of God, by somebody else? And who might God want you to help keep them off the cliff? Let's talk about the bullet points. Confrontation is often hard. Anybody want to say amen? amen? I hate confrontation. I hate... I never wake up in the morning going, I hope I get to confront somebody today. <laughs> I don't like it. I like people to like me, right? I like people, let's get along, let's drink coffee, let's laugh, let's have fun. I don't like confrontation because it hurts sometimes. It's hard sometimes. And oftentimes people don't want to hear it. And so no matter how loving you say it, sometimes it just hurts. Confrontation is hard. Did you know Nathan was actually risking his life to confront King David? David could have said, off with his head, I don't want to hear this. Who are you to talk to me about this? Confrontation is hard because the devil runs all the bad scenarios and tries to keep us, keep the good ones away. When I was in college, I think I've told you this story before. When I was in college, I was a freshman, and um, I, I was good in English, and I had a, a, a good high school education, and so I was put into a, the highest level of English and freshman class, and, um, and I got an A the first semester, and I had figured out what I needed to do to get an A the second semester. So I just did, you know, I just did enough. And, uh, and so before I left for the summer, I went in to see the professor, whose name was, ironically, Dr. Bland. <laughs> English, English literature, Dr. Bland. It all seemed to make sense. So I went in to see him, and I said, what did I get? Because I knew what I needed on my final in order to get an A for the semester. And so he told me what it was, and it was like, I don't know, 91 or 89 or something like that. I go, oh, I said, that's good. I got an A. And I said, that's good. And he looked at me straight in the eye, and he went, for most people. That was in 1976. And I still remember it. You know what he was saying? He's saying, you can do better than that. God has given you gifts and abilities to do better than that. And you're just getting by. That's stuck with me ever since. That's confrontation. He could have not said that. And I would have never heard it. And it... He could have said that, and I could have gotten mad and yelled at him. But he took the risk to say just that simple statement that has impacted me the rest of my life. We never know. That's, but that's a good scenario. I could tell you a hundred bad scenarios when I've tried to confront people or other people have confronted me and I didn't take it well. Confrontation is essential. Confrontation is essential. So we go back to the introduction, and, and, and if... In a spiritual sense, if somebody is laying on the, the surgical table and they've got spiritual appendicitis and they're going to die if somebody doesn't keep them. If, if somebody's walking towards a cliff and you know that they're headed towards that cliff and you don't say anything, the Bible tells us that we are responsible 
We are responsible for not saying something because we belong to each other. And we just let them walk off the side of the cliff. It's essential because sometimes you don't know you're walking towards the cliff, right? Sometimes you're just oblivious. You have no idea. Someday, these babies that we dedicated are going to need to be confronted. Ryan and Vanessa, I'm so sorry, but um, Hallmark movies are fake. (laughs) They don't show people changing dirty diapers. They don't show them being up at 3 o'clock in the morning, these babies being sick for three days, and you're just... They don't show any of that stuff. And someday... They're going to have to be confronted. Someday they're going to do something wrong. They need to be. And, and you know what? When they're, enjoy the babies, enjoy the toddlers, enjoy the LMA, because the teenage years are coming. <laughs> and you have to confront, and you have to correct, and you have to do things. And I'm telling you, I remember there were days, I, I'm sorry, you're going to go home and want to give the baby away. There were days, parents, and see if you can identify with this. There were days when I would corre- I'd have to correct one of my teenage kids, and they would be mad at me, and they would say, I hate you, and I would go up to my bedroom and weep because it's just hard. But it was essential because if we don't, then we're not obeying God, and they don't have a chance to know God the way that he wants them to. Proverbs 27, 17, confrontation is essential. Iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Iron sharpens iron. The only way that we can be sharp, the only way that we can be what God wants us to be is if we're sharpening one another. And when you sharpen one another, sparks fly, right? But we have to do it. We have a biblical obligation to speak the truth in love. God did not make any single person other than Jesus capable of of seeing and understanding and living life with all the abilities that we need. In God's infinite wisdom, he puts opposites together in a marriage. And sometimes it feels like he's sadistic, (laughs) doesn't it? How in the world could we be so opposite? And the reality is we can either be like this or we can be like this, right? Opposites attract because we need each other. And there are places in our lives where we don't see the gaps. We don't see the, the problems. We don't have all the wisdom that we need. And we need other people to come alongside of us. What might happen if somebody doesn't confront you? If you, if you think of a time when God, God sent somebody into your life to confront you, and you're so grateful for it, what might have happened if they didn't? What might happen in the person's life that God wants to use you? And, and so let, well, let, me, let me give you this. I'm going to stand up. We can either have confrontation. We can do it in two ways. One is that person's doing something wrong. I'm going to draw a line in the sand. I'm going to point my finger in their face. And I'm going to tell them exactly what they're doing. <laughs> and, what, and that has a lot of chances of going very wrong bloodied and bruised. Or confrontation can look like this. I come alongside somebody and I put my arm on them, on their shoulder and say, you know, I love you so much. And you're headed toward a cliff. And I don't want you walking off that cliff. Can I, can I help you understand where you're headed? That's confrontation. That's the kind of confrontation with, that it talks about in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love is coming along. And, and, and that's, but the devil tries to run all these scenarios on how that's going to go wrong. But most of the time, if you put your arm around someone, it can still go wrong, but not, not like when you get your finger in their face. Does that make sense? Confrontation, the next bullet point, is an act of love and vice versa. Confrontation is an act of love. To not confront is an act of hate. Got it? So when God says, that person is headed for a cliff, I want you to go put your arm around them and help them see they're headed for a cliff and, help, and try to turn them around. To not do so is an act of hatred. 
We don't have everything we need. Jude is a one-chapter book of the New Testament. It says this, verses 17 to 23, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own godly passions. Anybody sound familiar? It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Stay focused. Together, stay focused. He's talking in plural, yourselves. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. In other words, do whatever you have to do to keep them from walking off a cliff. Confrontation. Go to them. Care about them. Plead with them. Be hard with them sometimes. I remember when I, I used to play basketball. Oh, to others, let me finish the verse. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. In other words, be very, very serious. I remember when I used to play basketball, sometimes as we'd be playing, I, I'm tall, and so they always wanted me to play underneath the basket and get the rebounds. But I like playing out at the three-point line. I, it's, for one thing, you didn't get hit in the face with elbows near as much. Second thing is you could shoot three-point shots, and, and I love making, and, and we would get behind, and we needed the rebounds, and one of my teammates would come to me, and he'd grab me by the shirt. Stay under the basket. We need you there. And I go, oh, okay. And I did it for the team, not for myself. I did it for the team. But he had been telling me, stay under the basket, stay under the basket, stay under, Herb, stay under the basket. Next time we go down, stay under the basket, stay under the basket. Until finally, he had to grab me by the shirt and look me in the eye and go, if you don't stay under the basket, I'm going to take you out back because we need you under the basket. That was an act of love. And sometimes spiritually, we have to grab people by the shirt. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself. I don't like confrontation. I like people to like me. Confrontation must be done walking in step with the Spirit. If you try to do confrontation on your own, so let's, let's run the scenario of Nathan coming to David. If, if Nathan goes, oh, okay, God, I hear you want me to confront David. And he walks in there and he puts his finger in the face of King David. You know what's going to happen? Somebody's chopping off his hand and throwing him out, right? Because he, he wouldn't have been walking in step with the Spirit. But instead... God, how do you want me to confront him? And God gave him this incredible way of, of picturing it so that David would be sucked into the, in, into the story before he even knew it was him. That's what we have to be walking in step with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Turn there very quickly. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. In addition to that scripture, there's Galatians 5, 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. So walking in step with the Spirit, doing what he tells us to do. Not only doing what he tells us to do, but showing us how to do it in a way that the other person will hear it. Would you say that if God wants you to confront somebody, do you, do you, would you guess that he knows that other person better than you do? I do it. That was a test. I was just checking to see if you were awake. And if that's true, then, and he loves that person more than you do, and he wants that person to hear the truth, not just to be confronted, don't you think he'll tell you the way to do it? So we have to be walking in step with the Spirit. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, he God gave, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, the leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all re attain the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, God wants you to experience Christ-likeness that brings satisfaction and fulfillment. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, which is where we're living today with all kinds of stuff coming with the name of Christ on it that is not of Christ, by human cunning, by the craftiness to deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth, what? In love. 
So when you hear somebody railing against behaviors and people as if they want to send them to hell, you can be sure that's not of Christ. Speaking the truth in love so that we grow up in every way unto him who is the head. That is, you reach maturity personally from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, with each part doing its work properly, makes the body grow up so it builds itself in love. So that together, not only individually, but together we experience the life that God has for us. It's not about me, it's about God and his purposes. And then finally, Garrett's getting tired of me talking, I know. (laughs) Confrontation must be received with spirit humility. So I've been talking a lot about hearing it from the Lord, and then confronting other people. I want you to look at me. You will be confronted, if you're listening to the Holy Spirit, if you're reading His Word, if you're praying, and if you're in relationship with other Christians, you will be confronted most every day. Because confrontation is just correction. It's just, don't do that, do this. Don't do it that way, do it this way. When you're reading the Bible in the morning and you see something pop out at you, okay, I need to change my behavior. That's confrontation. We, and we need to ask God. God, show us the way. We need to have this spirit of humility. Here's the attitude. When we hear somebody else confront us, when, you know what? You might be right. That's the attitude. That's the attitude of humility. You know, even if you're convinced 99% that you're right and they're wrong, just that 1% of saying, okay, let me take it to God and see if maybe. Because I got to tell you, there have been times when I, Sheila would say something to me and I go, that is the crazy, that is the stupidest. Uh, what, what are you talking about? And then I have to come back and go, you know what? <laughs> you were right. I didn't think it at the time. But only when we have that kind of humility, this you may be right. In Galatians chapter 2, there's the, Scenario when, I'm not going to read it. You can just look at it later if you want to. The scenario in uh, the area of Galatia, in Antioch, Peter comes to Antioch. Paul was in Antioch and came to Antioch. Let me back up. Peter um, and Paul were in the same spot together. And Peter got caught up by people who thought, you know, people ought to be Jewish before they become Christians. And he began to separate himself from the Gentile believers. And, the, and now who was Peter? The Rock. He was the one who was supposed to be leading the church. He's the one who stood up on Pentecost and gave that great sermon. He was the leader of the 12. He, would, he was the guy. But he was doing something wrong. And Paul came into town l- late you know, late into this business, calling himself the least of the apostles. And he confronted Peter and said, you know what? What you're doing is wrong and you're leading other people astray. You know what Peter did? You're right. You're right. It wasn't about position. It was about humility. It's about God and his purposes. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Come alongside of him. Show him where he's going wrong. Keep watch on yourself. Lest you too be tempted. In other words, you're never, the same person that you confront might be the person that tomorrow comes back and shows you something. That's the humility. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So as we wrap up, what might it cost those you love if you refuse to speak the truth and love to them? Eternal life, this life? Because it's hard. And you might get your feelings hurt. You might get attacked. It's not about any of that. It's about doing what God wants you to do. What might it cost you to receive, to refuse, to, to refuse to receive confrontation? Same thing. What might it cost God and his purposes, at least in the short run? Our presence, yeah. Him using us. He'll find somebody. 
but won't miss out. So would you bow your heads? I asked you a little bit ago to listen for any place where the Holy Spirit is trying to confront you. If anything came to mind, ask for forgiveness. Confess it. Repent. Change. Because every time you don't, you take a step farther away from God and towards destruction. Anybody come to mind that God might want you to put your arm around and point out something? As I look back over my life, I can, there are many points where I can say, I'm sure glad that person said that to me. And I don't know where I would be if they didn't. You might be that person that 20 years from now, somebody looks back and says, man, I'm glad they said that to me. Be obedient. And let's develop the practice at New Song Church of loving each other enough to say the hard things. I don't like it. But let's be soldiers. Lord, I pray that you would envelop each one of these people with your presence, your power, your truth. Give them the courage that they need to receive confrontation, the courage that they need to confront. I pray that you would give us the ability to put it in your hands when we do and and just let you, in your wisdom and your ability, your power, your purposes, to, to do what you need to do regardless of what we see as a result. Make us the people of God who are soldiers for, your, for you, for your kingdom. Lord, I pray once again for these families who have dedicated children that you would give them your wisdom, your direction, your guidance your strength to help them become the man and woman of God that you created them to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you'd like to follow up on any of this, I'd like that amen 